And hello, Lighthouse families. You join us once again for God's Word. Hey, we're glad to be opening God's Word today to speak to you, to challenge you once again on our series in the book of Esther. We are in Esther chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, turn to Esther chapter 7. The story of Esther is reaching its climax. Will good overcome evil? How will God come through and rescue His people? Will God rescue you, perhaps, in your situation? How does God work in everyday situations? Uh, those are all really great questions, and they'll be answered today in God's Word. In chapter 7, our eyes are on the king. Will he intervene to stop Haman's plot to wipe out Haman and the Jewish nation? He's the one who signed off on it. He's the one with the power to interrupt it. Yet we know that the king is both ridiculous and inept in terms of his wisdom. The king is portrayed satirically throughout the book of Esther. His difficulty reading situations, he is unable to make his own decisions, and he overreacts to small-scale problems, such as the life of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, as he's known in history. Today we meet Esther at a moment of confrontation in which she acts on her convictions. It's one thing to believe, say, I, I believe in certain things, and, and, uh, but it's another thing to act on our convictions or, and act on what we believe. And that's what's going to happen in today's story. But as we do that, I just want you to bow your heads in prayer with me as we ask for God's blessing on His Word to our hearts. Heavenly Father, we come before You. We thank You for the inspired, inerrant Word of God. And I pray, Father, that as I... Proclaim your word that you will use the words from my lips and the meditation of my heart to be such, Lord, that it would speak and relay what you would have to say to your people. So bless your word and guide us to the Spirit's leading in all that we say and do. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We pick it up in chapter 7, verse 1. It says, So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. Up to this point, there a lot has transpired in this book. There's been an edict issued by Haman with the king's signet ring for the Jewish nation all to be exterminated, wiped out, annihilated by all those that were present, and that the spoils of the Jewish people would all go to, into the coffers of the king and the people that were involved with it. Because Haman had this absolute hatred for Mordecai, as we know, and we also know that at this point, too, that Esther is in the palace. She's aware of this, what's going down. She's put her life on the line. Uh, Haman's gone ahead and built a gallows 50 feet high in his own backyard, in which he hopes to destroy Mordecai. But things have been turning rather differently. Remember that neither the king nor Haman knew that Esther was a Jewish person at this point. And now you can better understand the significance of the repeated a detail that she was not to make known her people uh, by Mordecai's uh, challenge to her in the book of Esther chapter 2 verse 10 and in verse 20 of chapter 2. And while Haman was undoubtedly disturbed by the previous events of his life and how that he had to parade Mordecai through the streets on a horse dressed in royal robes and uh, he'd gone home and thought oh man my my arch enemy is now uh, the one that's been elevated in terms of uh, status by the king. Uh, I wonder what's going to happen. He probably thought he was perhaps, in a sense, I think, uh, 
exempt from any serious issues happening in his life at this point. And uh, after all, he'd been restrained from asking the king for permission to hang Mordecai and risk involving the king's anger at this point. So that's where it's been kind of in. Haman could simply have waited for his revenge because the edict was still out, it was still in force, and eventually Mordecai would die at his hands, perhaps not on his gallows. Esther now was having to stand in the gap for her people, as we see. And standing in the gap for her nation would be a huge challenge. If she had refused this calling on her life, she would have missed out on the blessing of being an integral part of redemptive history. But God would have found another way, as Mordecai had said, to carry out his plan. God was not limited. There's an obvious parallel between the life of, the, of Ruth and of Esther. Both women yielded to God to work through them and both played an integral part and significant role in the redemptive history of Israel. We see in verse 2 that on the second day as they were drinking wine after the feast, this was Esther's feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. This is actually about the third time that the king Ahasuerus has asked Esther, what do you really want? What, what is it that you really want? And she just was biding uh, her time. And uh, Chuck Swindle had an interesting comment on this. I like what he said. He was, I think, accurate in his assessment of why uh, three times? He's really asked two other times. And when she first approached him and he held out a scepter, then at the first banquet, but Esther never answered him because the timing in Esther's mind wasn't right. She was a shrewd woman. Esther had a sensitive ear, a wise heart, and she sensed something wasn't quite right in terms of timing. So she didn't push it. She knew when to act. She knew when to wait. And she was just waiting for the pivotal time as to when she would open her mouth and to say what needed to be said. Now, there's a lot to be said for the, her wisdom in that respect. The question sometimes comes up to me, are we as sensitive as that? Do we know when to listen? Do you know when to speak up and when to keep quiet? Sometimes I have to challenge people. Before you open your mouth, think. Because a lot of times people will open their mouths and say some of the craziest things. And, and, and when they speak, you can tell. They've really not thought through everything that needs to be thought about. Do you know how much to say as well as when to say it? It's so very important. Do you have the wisdom to hold back until the right moment? And that's why it's always wise to take our time in expressing what's on our hearts and our minds. Make sure you have the proper information before you open up your mouth to speak into a certain situation. In verse 3, then Queen Esther, carrying on in this passage, answered, If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if pleased the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Esther's wisdom is shown here in this passage in the way she presents her petition. Notice how she first kings, focuses the king's attention on the fact that her life was in danger, which he was totally oblivious to. Attack that would surely appear, appeal to the, how the king felt about Esther because he loved her dearly. 
In other words, she did not just blurt out, hey, there's a man in your kingdom who plans to destroy all the Jews, and that includes me. You need to do something about it. In fact, it was the entire petition she does not implicate a single individual as responsible for this evil plan. When she speaks, my people, as my request, some feel that Esther is now revealing the Jewish nation. That, that's my people. That's my nation. That's who I'm a part of. However, the text does not clearly state that she says she is Jewish, even as Haman had hidden the identity of the people when he made his request to the king to wipe them out back in the book of Esther, chapter 3, verse 8. And, says, and then she says in verse 4, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not compared with the loss to the king. What did Esther mean by the statement, we have been sold? Recall that Amon had in a sense bought off the king by offering to pay him a huge sum of money back in Esther chapter 3 verse 9 and was specifically relayed to Esther in Esther's discussion with Mordecai. She knew that there was a price on their heads and the king had actually agreed to this price, this money that him was going to pay if his people were be wiped out. It's interesting that Esther, in a sense, avoids the detail that was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. She didn't say, hey, by the way, king, you're part of this plot. By the way, your signet ring is on this. But she uses the terms destroyed, killed, annihilated. The same phrase that is found in Esther 3.13 or 3, and chapter 8, verse 11. We see Mordecai's wisdom in sending her a copy of the actual decree. Here she recounts the words of that decree to his face. Notice King Ahasuerus' response in verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? Which shows again the king was totally oblivious to what was going on in his kingdom. Who is he and where is he? As noted above, Esther never implicated a single individual, certainly not the king, but the king comes to the conclusion on his own as she lays out what's going on to him and to the challenge that she is facing. In other words, who would dare do this? Uh, what uh, has so filled his heart that he would want to do something like this? So the king still does not connect the dots and associate Haman with his plot nor his role in this drama. He's totally oblivious. He has no idea. In verse 6, uh, Esther lays it out. And she said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Haman had been referred to as the enemy of the Jewish nation. And he now knows that Esther, the king does, that Esther is a Jew. Haman also knows that Esther is a Jew and that he is in deep doo-doo, as somebody would put it. She had not used the name Jew, but Haman knew who was about to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated, and it wasn't going to be the Jewish nation. One can only imagine his horror at the realization that the king's wife, the queen, was a Jew, and he had an edict out to have her destroyed. Had no idea. 
We see that Haman became terrified, afraid, overwhelmed. Haman's life was progressed from honor to humiliation to horror in less than 24 hours. This almost was right when he recalled, Behold, he who keeps guards and protects Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God watches out over his own people. Verse 7, the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. The king was fuming. The king was angry. could not believe this. But again, it shows how uh, he lacked knowledge. He really didn't have a clue what was really going down. But now he did. And he was so angry. Haman says, what am I going to do? My life is now in the balances. It says Haman uh, stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. The boastful bully is now, uh, somebody author has put it, he's reduced to a whimpering coward. He wanted to destroy the Jewish people. He wanted to destroy Mordecai. And now it's his life that is on the line. Can you see the incredible irony that brought about the behind-the-scenes work of God? Because God knew that the, the whole uh, uh, aspect of the life of his people was now in jeopardy. But uh, God was not worried about it because God was always at work behind the scenes through this whole situation. And again, I, I want to remind you something as you're listening to the story. As God is working out this whole plan through Esther, through Mordecai, the nation of Israel had no idea what God was up to. Do you hear that? They had no idea. In their minds, when this month comes along, then on this month, that we are going to be wiped out and killed by all the Persians in this empire and going to take all our goods and everything we have. Uh, our lives are in the toilet. We are done. We are finished. But they had no idea what God was up to. See, Haman had been filled with rage toward a Jew who had refused to bow down to him and now he's bound before a Jewish woman begging for his life. The irony is that the man who was so angry because one Jew refused to bow down to him, in the space of a few days, prostrated himself before Mordecai and Esther at this point, begging to be saved from sure death. Haman's wife's prediction is now being realized. For being a proud peacock, he shows himself to be a whimpering coward whose life is going to be very, very short. We pick it up in verse 8. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Do not miss this phrase. Uh, this time phrase, because it is significant. And once again, it shows God providentially in control of what is happening. The king just happens to come in and sees Haman prostrate over his wife, begging him, begging her. And he takes it the wrong way. He thinks she's trying to, he's trying to have uh, relations with my wife. And again, it just needs to be the, the right timing. So when Haman is falling on the couch where Esther was, that was the final straw for the king. Haman's fate was sealed. Had Haman gone out with the king instead of staying to beg the queen, the scene might not have occurred. 
And when it says here in Scripture that they covered Haman's face, that, that's an idea that he, he was a dead man. And all the servants that were there knew it. So they put a cloth over his head. And they said, he's dead. He's as good as dead. Haman did it at the wrong time. And the king entered the room at the right time. God's providence of moving to avenge his people, the Jews, and his timing is always perfect. Because sometimes, as you look at this, you think, well, it's an interesting story, and yeah, it's interesting how all these events transpire. But sometimes we look at this and we say, is, is this really the hand of God? And the answer is yes. And sometimes we need to say, Lord, open my eyes to see what you are doing. So often we go through life and we think, what has God up to? And the truth is, we need to have eyes of faith to see what God is up to, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of others. Have you ever prayed and say, God, open my eyes so I can see what you're up to? Open my eyes to see what you're doing in my job. Open my eyes to see what you're doing in my life. Lord, help me to see what you're doing. Sometimes I'm afraid we're so busy and so preoccupied, we don't see what God is up to. And that's why we need to be praying, God, open my eyes. I want to see what you're up to. So Haman's head was covered in humiliation and in preparation for his execution. Covering one's head of a condemned prisoner was a custom in ancient times. And then we see in verse 9, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. Isn't that irony? This very same gallows that Haman had built in his own backyard to kill Mordecai would be the same gallows which he would now be hung on. Obviously, Haman had made this known about the fact that he built these gallows. It was well known. Everybody kind of knew that he had built these gallows. Reminds me of a saying during World War II that somebody had emphasized. It says this, loose lips sink ships. Uh, notice also in this verse too, it said, Mordecai who spoke good on behalf of the king. This is the king's first knowledge of Haman's plan to kill Mordecai, and this was the proverbial final straw. He said, he wants to kill someone who spoke up and saved my life by, you know, in a sense, making me aware of an assassination plot, and he wants to wipe out the guy that saved my life? Really? So, well, on numerous previous occasions in the book of Esther, the king has sought and followed the advice of his advisors. Here he steps up and in his wrath and anger says, this is it. He doesn't go to his advisors. He says, Haman has to hang. Hang him high. Uh, and so with all the wealth and things that Haman had, really, what would that do him at this point in his life? Notice the progression produced by providence. Haman was first of all honored, then he was humiliated, then he was horrified, and then he was hanged. Warren Worsby summarizes, I think, several biblical examples of the law of sowing and reaping. That's a huge lesson for us today. Jacob killed an animal and lied to his father, pretending to be Esau. And years later, 
Jacob's sons killed an animal and lied to him, pretending that Joseph was dead. What you sow, you reap. Pharaoh gave orders to drown the Jewish baby boys. And one day his army was drowned in the Red Sea by God. You reap what you sow. David secretly took his neighbor's wife and committed adultery. And David's own son Absalom took his father's concubines and openly committed adultery with them. What you reap is a result of what you sow. Furthermore, David's daughter Tamar was raped by her half-brother Amnon. David killed Bathsheba's husband, and three of David's own sons were slain, Absalom, Amnon, and Adonijah. And so we see that in all those things that the scriptural teaching is this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, this will he also reap. For whether he sows to his own flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption. And the same one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. In Galatians 6, verse 7, we read that. So we see in verse 10, So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai, and then the wrath of the king abated. Beloved, you can mark it down that any enemy that has ever tried to destroy Israel has been destroyed. The Genesis 12.3 principle applies to all individuals like Haman, Hitler, to also to all nations. I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee. It seems things have gone on in silence in the heavens, but God is still at work in the stillness. He is the hidden helm turning the ship beneath the waves. The book of Esther is a book of perfect timing. What is impressive to us is not what Esther did, but as to how God did it. The Jews were not spared because of the good fortune or the quick thinking of Esther or Mordecai. It was all about God's faithfulness in keeping his covenant promises. God is a God who keeps his word. In conclusion, what I say? Well, Esther 7 is really a, a story about two kinds of people, about who gets life and who doesn't. It's a lesson about divine providence on the righteous and divine retribution on the wicked. It's about the blessing being given to the people of God and judgment on the people against God. Ultimately, the righteous will win, and ultimately the wicked will be destroyed. When God works in the life of those who are righteous, he's very skilled at what he does. It's like watching a master carpenter building a cabinet, a master chef chopping vegetables. It seems easy uh, until you try it. God is like that here in this story. It's a wonder to behold his works to see how skillfully he manipulates the strands of time and the threads of human life and history to carefully weave his purpose and accomplish his goals in our lives. It's obvious in the book of Esther. It's not easy to see God's hand oftentimes at work in our hearts, in our lives. We watch these Bible characters that live out their lives throughout Scripture, and we think that it, it must have been easy for them to trust God through this whole situation. And so we say that it's sometimes harder for us to trust in God and His purposes. Due to the stress and pace of life, it's hard to see where God is working sometimes and what He's doing. If that is how you feel, God's work can only be seen through the eyes of faith. Do you hear that? So how, how, how can we see 
God at work. I have only one suggestion. If you want to see God at work in your life, open your eyes and begin looking for Him. When you get up every morning, you uh, let God know through prayer, Lord, I, I want to see where you're working today. And not only do I, I want to see where you're working today, Lord, I want to see where you're working and I want to get behind it. Because I want to be right in sync with what you are doing, Father. Because I said earlier throughout Scripture, through this passage, God is always at work. Discerning God's fingerprints in the silence is what spiritual maturity is all about. An unbeliever can see the same results, but fails to recognize what has been done by God as being the hand of God. Now they will say it's, it's luck, they'll say it's chance, they won't see God in it. When God providentially works through his will and his purposes, and those being perfectly accomplished, we realize that it needs to be seen by faith, that God is in the business of shaping and molding your life and mine so that we can be an evidence uh, of the masterpiece work of God. Many look sometimes at the deliverance of the Jewish nation in the book of Esther and see no more really than the cleverness of Esther at manipulating the king. And unfortunately that's sad because when people look at these stories they say, well, you know what? That was just a very clever person. But what we have to see is, no, we see the masterful hand of God guiding each step of the way. And you know what? There's times in your life you're going to be wondering, Lord, what are you up to in my life? And sometimes, my friend, as you look at your life, you say, well, I, and I've had people tell me, you know what? I, I don't know where God's at work in my life. I really don't. And that's why you need to, by faith, as I said earlier, ask God to open your eyes to see what he's doing. And how it's like, and sometimes he might not reveal it to you right now. He might reveal it down the road. I know I can look back at my life, 10, 20 years, and I can see at different points in my life how God had people come into my life, spoken to my life through challenges, through trials, how God was shaping and molding my life. And perhaps if you take time to do that today, to write down, think about the different events that have transpired in your life to see that God's hand has always been at work in your life. I remember, remember God's words from the scripture. For God's desire is to shape you into the, and to conform you to the very image of Jesus Christ. That's his goal for your life. Sometimes people say to me, Pastor, what's God's will for my life? I said, it's pretty simple, my friend. Really? I said, yeah, God's desire is that you be conformed to the image of the Son. He wants to make you more like Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you for your word to our hearts. Continue to shape us, mold us. Lord, use us for your purposes, because your purposes will prevail over men's purposes any day and every day. So, Father, as we look at our world, look at our lives, look at this situation, Lord, thank you that you are always at work. Thank you that your will will be accomplished. So bless us as we go about our ways. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.